Welcome to the Second in Command podcast, produced by the COO Alliance and brought to you by its founder, Cameron Harold. In the Second in Command podcast, we talk to top COOs who share the insights, strategies, and tactics that made them the chief behind the chief. And now, here's your host, Cameron Harold. Ritesh Chaturbedi is the Chief Operating Officer at Systemax, a value-added industrial distributor going to market through its operating subsidiaries, primarily under the name Global Industrial and related brands. His extensive experience in operations, procurement, customer service, technology, and critical growth operations. Ritesh is also sought after by CXOs as the strategic consultant and advisor. His strong track record of success spanning numerous industries has given him a unique perspective that is both broad and deep. To share in his expertise in partnership with us, with like-minded professionals, he co-founded Ramasha Holdings, a strategy, technology, and management consulting company. Ritesh has worked with prior clients, including companies such as BJ's, Adorama, Ditech, and Sears Canada. So Ritesh, welcome to the Second Command Podcast. Glad to be here, Cameron, and thank you for the opportunity. Interesting on that that last sentence that you did some work with Sears Canada. Why? How did that end up coming about? So I was actually at Sears Holdings Corporation for about four years. Uh, I was uh, recruited uh, right out of Amazon to really transform and grow their e-commerce operation. And later on, I took on the e-commerce business as well. And an offshoot of that was in Sears Canada. And uh, the CEO of Sears Canada at that point in time uh, after I had left uh, uh, Sears and uh, while I was consulting, had reached out to me because he and I had uh, done some work in the past and I was recommended to him. Um, he was looking at some uh, cost cutting measures as well as how to drive e-commerce growth, uh, especially around, uh, you know, the marketing as well as hard lines. And uh, he also wanted some expertise around customer experience. So that's how I was tapped. I was an alumni of Sears Holdings, and then I ended up, you know, uh, going to help a subsidiary of it in Canada. Interesting. It's Sears, it's Sears with their, um, their, their catalog business, and you used to go into these stores in Canada 40 years ago, and you would, you would look through a catalog, and you'd fill out this little form and bring it up to somebody, mm-hmm. and they would hand... I'm I'm surprised that they were so ahead of the curve with that that they missed the boat on e-commerce. They seem to have have kind of missed it completely. What happened? Uh, so the, uh, it's uh, good intentions, but I think uh, in the long run, it's uh, uh, I think it's about timing and execution. I would say not just Sears Canada, but Sears as a whole. I mean, if you look at the history of Sears, it used to be Amazon in the catalog or paper catalog format. Yeah. Um, uh, the, uh, the versus, you know, in e-commerce now, everything is digital. So if you replace digital with a paper catalog, I mean, it had everything. You, you, you could, you know, select, it had enormous selection. It had great pricing. You could send it over to Sears via mail and you could even buy mobile homes at some point in time mm-hmm. that would be delivered to you anywhere in the country. So I think it was uh, a, a little bit of a, a miss in terms of timing. There were a lot of things in you know, e omni-channel capabilities that Sears Holdings, and I was part of architecting a bunch of them in my tenure there as well, that were, I would say, ahead of the curve. For example, buy online, pick up at store. It was, you know, part of Sears parlance for about a decade. Um, you know, layaway was a part of parlance for about a decade. They had insurance, uh, they had Discover Card came out of that from a, 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 you know, a credit card facility. But I don't think they pivoted fast enough in mm. e-commerce. Uh, they were present in e-commerce, but I don't think they pivoted fast enough in e-commerce. They really did not innovate fast enough and they did, they really did not 
take that legacy model of brick and mortar and then literally create, basically an engineer a creative destruction process of combining omni-channel yeah. from both retail and e-commerce and combining into one. Uh, that's my opinion. I think they have gotten a lot better, uh, and, but uh, the whole uh, you know, company is challenged through several bankruptcy, I would say. Yeah, for sure. Well, because Walmart seems to be doing a pretty good job with it now and Target seems to be doing a pretty good job yep. with it. That, um, yep. Yeah, I was surprised that Sears didn't. Funny that you mentioned layaway. I was trying to explain mm-hmm. to my kids the other day what layaway was. It's kind of the opposite of credit cards. Layaway was... <laughs> Layaway was you wanted it and you started paying for it before you got it. And credit cards is you want it and you can't afford it and they give it to you before you pay for it. It's like backwards. Exactly. And and, and think about the innovation, right? They were able to sell this and improve their cash conversion cycle at the oh. same time gets a certainty around inventory planning. I mean, the, the classic, classic, you know, a great solution to a, a problem. Can you speak to inventory planning for us for a second? And, and I don't know if this is tied in with Systemax at all, but mm. I'd love some of your perspectives from what you learned at Amazon and what you've mm. seen with other businesses around inventory. Mm-hmm. Let's say that you're a, a business who is selling on Amazon or selling direct to consumer from the website through a 3PL how do you know how much inventory to have and, and how, you know, how often to be buying? Are there, are there numbers or ratios or metrics or leading indicators you need to look at? Can you give us a there, crash course? Uh, there, there are definitely a lot of metrics around uh, inventory, you know, uh, overall forecasting as well as uh, placement. Um, let's talk about inventory forecasting. Uh, in, in the past, uh, people used to use like model. So for example, if, if somebody else is buy, selling a, a, a pair of jeans, they would watch how much sell through that has happened and then create a like model and say, if I create similar kind of a product, it should sell these many different units and there's seasonality associated with it. And then I'm going to go procure it. There's a lead time associated with that procurement. If you're doing it from Far East and you kind of, you know, order ahead of time. Um, so in the past, the procurement cycle was fairly long, right? You, you would procure for some summer in the winter time frame where, mm-hmm. you know, you, you, you'd assume that there is a demand that is going to be out there. And again, yeah. it's based on like for like model. And then you go to, uh, you know, uh, the best cost provider out there. It may be Bangladesh, it may be Far East. You manufacture it, ship it back here, put it in your warehouses, then distribute it to your uh, stores and hopefully it will sell through. If not, then you do clearance and so on and so forth. So it's okay. a fairly long lead time process. Yeah. On the forecasting side, a few of the things that has changed over the last, I would say, a decade or two is computing power has been extraordinarily cheap. Mm. And with the cloud migration, now you can put a lot of your statistical data on the cloud and use very sophisticated methodologies. You can use, you know, machine learning methodology. There are a lot of, you know, uh, uh, software out there that actually gives you a really good forecasting piece of it. Hey, if you have this kind of a product, even though if it's not really exactly what it is, it can create a like-for-like model and give you an overall projection around it. That's the, you know, forecasting process. But the placement is very different. You can forecast it, right? You, you need a hundred pair of jeans. Yeah. But where do you place it? Do you place mm-hmm. it all in Wisconsin? Do you place it all in Texas? Wow. And then that becomes a lot more complicated because now you're talking about state by state, region by region demand. Right. You're taking, yeah, and you're taking weather into consideration, right? If you have you know, the shorts, you might sell more in Florida, even you know, in fall, 
versus you can't uh, you know sell shorts in New York area around fall. So the placement becomes a lot more complicated, and then you layer in the regional demand, which is you know uh, 50 states, and if you go a little bit further out, there are thousands of zip codes, and you layer on seasonality, it becomes highly complicated. Mm. So the way to tackle that is going to be based on what is a methodology that you know Amazon uses as well as you know a lot of retailers uses. We look at our inventory as short tail, medium tail, and long tail. A short tail is basically about 10 to 20% of your inventory that cycles very fast, high demand. You want to keep them as close to the customer as possible and in high quantity as possible. So that helps you place, right? And if you look at Amazon's supply chain model, it is kind of modeled around these three tiers, right? So when they say they are opening DCs in Manhattan, they're not providing millions of SKUs in that small footprint in, uh, in, in, oh, in Washington, D.C. They are placing the short tail very close to Cameron. So when wow. Cameron says click, I can literally pick back and get it to you within a couple of hours. Interesting. Medium tail is what you call you know, uh, medium demand, medium volume. Those are where you, which you put it in centralized DCs or regional DCs. And depending upon your brand profile, either your regional uh, you know, player or a national player, you can place it in different places. And the long tail, you can solve it through dropship network where you don't carry the inventory, you don't want to sure. take the risk. Or you create a marketplace where other people can fill in that inventory and they do the fulfillment, but you become the platform to actually, you know, uh, fill the demand to your customers. Wow. The complexity of this is incredible, right? Is, can, is there any way that retail can survive, you know, when, when bigger companies like Amazon or even smaller companies can start having access to this kind of analytics and planning? Can retail as we knew it survive? Absolutely. I, I'm absolutely confident that retail can survive but they have to go through or force themselves through this creative destruction process. And let me explain what that means. Retail is based on a static you know, demand profile, which doesn't change for weeks, right? Where you have certain SKUs in a storefront that is out there waiting for the customers to come in. And till it gets replenished or till it gets sold out, you don't get through the replenishment cycle. Yeah, yeah. Whereas e-commerce is the opposite. It's like whichever customer comes first, we're going to get that order and then pull the inventory to the customer. So instead of bringing customer to the retail store, you're actually taking the products to the uh, customer. The first step of, of that transformation is really combining the ordering, uh, order flow, the financial flow, and the labor flow between e-commerce and, uh, and, and, and storefront. If you can share the inventory between a retail store and what you have for e-commerce, some of these you know, yeah. retailers have centralized distribution center just for e-commerce. They're duplicating inventory. Yeah. But if you can combine them and say, hey, if Cameron is in, let's say, you know, Arizona, I have a store in Arizona, in material of where the order arises, be it in a POS stand in the retail store or on a click on a mobile, really doesn't matter. If sure. I can get that product to Cameron, that would be great. So that transformation, that omni-channel transformation is number one. That's Number two, you have to really look at your tech platform, data, and analytics. I cannot stress this enough. The, the, the speed of e-commerce is in milliseconds and nanoseconds versus retail is ours. So the magnitude of difference is significant. So getting that technology and getting that capability is extraordinarily important. That's the second part. 
The third part of it is, if you look at Amazon's evolution, they started at centralized DCs, they went with regional DCs, then now they're doing forward deployed DCs, which is literally in, in, the, in the heart of you know, different population center. This is the advantage that retail has. Retail already has stores in all the population centers within two to three mile radius. Right, so if they right. can carve out a portion of their footprint, and then Target is starting to do that, even Macy's is starting to, they're coming around to this, is yeah. instead of using the storefront as just a display, yeah. can they carve out a portion of that uh, you know, retail footprint and that inventory and be the distribution center? I think that gives a instant gratification, better inventory utilization, better labor utilization, and better customer experience end-to-end. That's interesting. And the ability to try on the product or taste the product before exactly. you... Why, that's really interesting. So you, you just kind of in the first 15 minutes proved you know your shit. <laughs> I have a, a lot of scars on my back too, you know, the, through a lot of battles uh, through many years. So that was, a, uh, that was a pretty random question to open with. So that was amazing content. Uh, tell me about SystemX, just so we understand in layman's terms, what, what's your, your business do? So SystemX is our holding company. Um, we are in MRO industry. M stands for maintenance, R stands for repair, O stands for operations. So basically what we do is we serve other businesses to do their business. In, in essence, if they want to, if any business wants to open a, a storefront, they need equipment, they need wire shelving, they need racking, they need equipment, they need bolts, they need uh, supplies, they need tape. We provide that to them. If you want to open a warehouse, you need, you know, pallet racks, even those 20 foot, 30 foot pallet racks, you need pallet jacks, you need conveyors, you need, you know, industrial fans, you need uh, uh, industrial equipment. We provide that. If you want to repair your products uh, that you have already provided or invested your CapEx into, we provide those repair, you know, supplies, parts, bolts, you know, all of those things that is required out there. And day-to-day operation, if you want, you know, uh, the janitorial sanitation product, safety products, which is pretty big right now for us, we provide that. And we sell these through uh, what I would call four subsidiaries, our biggest and the most important subsidiary, and, and the, the best known brand name is Global Industrial, globalindustrial.com. We also have uh, a subsidiary called Nexel, which we primarily sell wire shelving, uh, the, the e-commerce directly. Uh, the, 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 uh, you know, the handle is nexelwire.com. The third one is industrialsupplies.com. Again, the name is pretty evident. And the fourth one is Avenue or the Global Industrial Canada. So we have been around for 70 years in this particular MRO industry. And if you want to do a a like-for-like comparison, uh, we are similar to Granger's, Uline, and MSC, and Fastenal. So again, going back to, we are the business who help other businesses do their business. Got it. And, and as soon as you said Grangers and Fastenal, I knew both of those because I used to be in the auto body industry. And then my uh, my dad and my brother's companies in industrial supply. So they would would kind of be in that similar. So um, Rakesh, I'm curious with, um, you know, leaving Amazon, you said you left Amazon to come over to SystemX. So what was it you were doing at Amazon? And, and um, you know, what, what was it that SystemX saw in you to bring you over? So a little bit of a, a slight correction there, Cameron, if you don't mind. I left Amazon to join Sears Holdings. I was there for about four years and then transitioned into online travel agency at with Fairportal. Uh, did a couple of year consulting, um, was COO of uh, a, a mortgage company, Ditech, and now I'm at Systemax. Uh, Got it. Okay, but, so Amazon uh, was early on in your career then. 
Yeah, Amazon was what I consider, and I tell my wife this, and then I really mean it. It, it is the uh, Iron Man or you know the Navy SEALs training ground. I was there for five years, and those wow. five years really, really gave uh, me. Uh, I, I would consider, in my opinion, about 10 to 15 years worth of very deep and wide experience. Uh, it was at the period of hyper growth when I joined. I think Amazon was about $7 billion. When I left, it was close to $60 billion. So 10x growth in that short amount of time. And, and what and, years and, were you there? Uh, 2006 to 2011. And, uh, uh, you know, the, it, it was such a, a, a great environment for people that wanted to learn that uh, really wanted to challenge yourself and then really stretch your management muscle. So th mm. th that was a very, very, you know, uh, productive part of my career, I would say. And if Amazon was my, um, you know, the training ground, Sears was my first battlefield or theater that I was uh, part of and, and was able to really transform uh, the e-commerce operation and later on the overall business as well. Yeah, it makes sense. Were you in uh, in Seattle with Amazon when you were with them? Um, I, you know, the, I was all over the field. I started in Kennewick, Washington, uh, running a call center operation, then was transitioned into Lexington, Kentucky, uh, to run one of the distribution center, and then later on took on reverse logistics for the company as well. And I was also part of a subsidiary operations called WarehouseDeals.com at that point in time. So I was not in Seattle per se. I was basically in the field, you know, really doing the uh, the hand-to-hand -hand combat of taking care of customers and uh, shipping products out. Amazing, amazing opportunity, though, to work with them back in, the, in that era as well. And then also to work with them during the whole global financial crisis. You must have seen some pretty crazy stuff going down then. Or, yeah, absolutely. Or or was that a blip for Amazon? Were they just like, just screaming growth anyway? Now, the growth was still there, but there was a lot of uncertainty, right? During that time, there were a lot of press around, oh, this is going to be next dot-com bomb. Uh, these highly capital-intensive companies such as Amazon that have not you know, created a lot of profit might go down. So there was a lot of uncertainty, but again, credit where credit is due. Uh, our management team and our senior leadership were absolutely steadfast and on just one thing. How do you serve your customers and, and do it in such a way that the customers come back to you again and again and again? And, and that is the mantra that I think has, uh, that, that has been part of my career or that has propelled me since then. And I, I saw what customer obsession could do and the power of customer obsession and really thinking ahead and then executing on ideas and then making sure that the execution is flawless, testing and iterating on it was a phenomenal, phenomenal you know, growth area for us. Yeah, you've mentioned a few times your customer experience and, and the customer, um, uh, I guess, yeah, the customer experience expertise that you've got. Can you walk us through some of your thoughts around customer experience and what makes a really great you know, customer experience and, and how, how companies need to obsess more about their customers. Uh, I would divide it into two parts, Cameron. Again, this is my understanding of customer experience, and I led customer experience back at Sears. And over, since then, every company that I've been with, I mean, customer experience has been the uh, front part of it, including in our company today, Systemax, our, our old strategy is based around accelerating customer experience, ACE, we call it internally. So the first aspect of customer is anticipating customers' needs and uh, uh, 
identifying products and services that they may need in the future and getting ahead of that. So uh, for some founders, it is very intuitive. They see it coming and they are very, very good at doing it. Some companies do it extraordinarily well. And some companies, you know, may not have that intuitive feel, but they listen to the customers in a very, very, you know, uh, close manner. They're always surveying customers. They're always listening to the customers. So one part is anticipating the needs of the customer ahead of time and positioning your products, services, your marketing, your communication, your entire strategy around that piece. The second part is what I would consider day-to-day. You need to think about customer experience as friction removal from the process and adding convenience. You take friction out, you add convenience. I think in the, in the grand scheme of things, that, that, that covers it. Anticipating customer needs, making sure that you have the products and services that they need, you know, taking friction out of the process and adding convenience. If you take those three elements, that kind of covers majority of the use cases that you can think about. So e-commerce, what does e-commerce do? It provides great selection. That's what the customers need. They provide great price competition. That's the customer they need. They provide great certainty. If you order at this point in time, you'll get it at this point in time, at this price. And at the, these are the different you know, capabilities that you have or options you have. Friction out of the process. In the old days, you'd have to send a catalog to somebody, wait for a long period of time. And that's a friction. You would have to call a call center, wait a long period of time. That's friction. Now wow. you take the friction out of with e-commerce. It's right on your you know, capability uh, on your phone. I mean, it, that, that removes a lot of friction out of the picture. The third part is, part is giving convenience or adding convenience. Hey, I want to buy online. I want to pick it up at the store. Hey, I want to buy online. Get me same day. I want to buy online. I don't want to think about how many uh, dollars I spend in shipping. Just give me free shipping. Just give me two-day shipping. Just give me. I'm ready to pay for the subscription piece, right? Um, user experience, UI, UX, as you see, you see in the website that we talk about a lot or mobile, it's all about you know, taking friction out of the process adding convenience back into. If I, if I want to contact somebody, I don't want to wait on the phone. That's a friction. I'm taking the friction away by providing chatbot or you know, uh, any capability on the website or on your mobile phone. Convenience, I want to call the, you know, 24-7. You may not have the uh, live person on the other side. A bot, a digital you know, ass- uh, assistant can help me. That's adding convenience. So if you focus on anticipating the customer needs, taking friction out of the process, adding convenience for the customers. I think that's, that, that, that's how I would summarize customer experience from my end. Dude, you just gave an MBA course in three minutes that's probably more valuable than anything anyone learns in an MBA program, period. That's like mic drop, walk off the fucking stage, you're done. For real. <laughs> Thanks, Cam. Like, Appreciate no, for, it. For real. Like you think about, so I was in um, Ahmedabad in India seven or eight years ago doing a speaking event. Mm-hmm. I was speaking with an entrepreneur there and he does $300 million in business selling oil. And I said, so what, you, what, like car oil? He goes, no, no, edible oil, like cooking oil. I'm like, wow, like how, like 300 million, how many countries are you selling in? He goes, country. He goes, I'm only selling in like two states in India. I'm like, how is it possible you sell $300 million in oil? He goes, oh, he goes, I understand. He goes, you Americans and Canadians, you actually identify a product nobody needs and you spend all your time trying to market it to people that don't want it. He goes, what I did is I found out that we need to use cooking oil. So I just sell cooking oil. He goes, and in North America, you use one tablespoon of oil a day. We use a quart or a liter. 
And I'm like, shit, that makes so much sense. He goes, yeah, we, goes, <laughs> we, we identify the customer needs and we sell into it, just what you're saying. But right. then the second parts I think that you talked about that are really intriguing are the friction removal, just making it simpler, mm-hmm. making it simpler, making it simpler. And um, I was in, in Park City this summer and I was standing at the top of the hill and, and I looked straight down a ski jump and it was straight down and so efficient. Mm-hmm. And then I went on the bobsled and at every turn I was getting bashed into the corner and I was thinking about the friction in all of these models and in my model specifically for right. SEO Alliance. And then I, I think about a speaker who talked one day about customer service departments. And he said, the only reason a company has a customer service department is one of four reasons. Either our product sucks, the service sucks, we overset expectations with our customer or the FAQs on the website suck. And, and you kind of, you intuitively understand all that. And then the convenience factor. So why is that so simple? Like, why do you see that so clearly? Has that been over the years or did that just come off the top of your head to you? Or have you been thinking a lot about this? No, I've been thinking about this for my entire career. And I still feel like I'm missing a couple of the points. But again, uh, there's this saying, right? There's a lot of sophistication in simplification. Um, as I've gone through literally since my beginning of the career till now, all the different industries that I've been in, all the different roles that I've been in, all the different problems I've solved, you know, we, we, I'm pretty sure you, you have done it uh, in your own career as well, Cameron, is when you look back and reflect upon your learnings, when you look back and reflect upon all the stories and all the uh, toolkit that you have created in your management toolbox, and one day you wake up and say, okay, I got to arrange this. There's too much of these things, right? And you start, you know, categorizing it in an affinity diagram way, the the kind of pattern starts emerging. Mm. In the old days, we used to call it, or even today, we call it experience in heuristics, but it comes with a lot of those iterations. So it's just my intuitive way of simplifying uh, all of the challenges that uh, that I have or my team has, you know, uh, overcome or we have faced throughout our career. I don't think there's a single business that exists today that couldn't massively benefit from, from really obsessing about those three things, though. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and again, there are a lot of companies that are vanguards of this, right? I mean, in the, in the uh, Nordstrom used to be, uh, USA is, Amazon is, and mm-hmm. there are a lot of other retailers that are coming around to this. I mean, Target take example of it. They are exactly using the same toolkit and same methodology, but the end is the same. The means, the technology, the platform, the, the supply chain, the products, the services might be different, but at the end of the day, Cameron, I feel like, you know, business is very simple. Uh, we can make it as complicated as possible. Business to me is, uh, I'm engineer by background. It's, you know, P equals to R minus C, right? Profit equals to revenue minus cost. You, 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 th- that's what it is. How do, you create, how do you create revenue? You sell products and services. How do you uh, create profit? You do it in a, in, a, in a way that you can provide value to the customer at the lowest cost possible. But you got to rinse and repeat. How do you get rinse and repeat? You got to have customers to actually pay for it. And that's where, the, if you look at that uh, first, uh, the principal hypothesis, that's where customer comes from. It's interesting though that engineers don't tend to make things simple. They tend to make things complicated or maybe, maybe it's just because I'm stupid and I don't see that it's making it simple, but you've, you've really simplified. Can you give us an example of when you've really anticipated customer needs or what you did to anticipate them? I'll I'll give an example of this year itself in Systemax. Um, We, you know, when when this pandemic started happening, um, we have a team, uh, a a supply chain team in Far East Asia, in China, that actually sources products and manufacture products for us. 
So we kind of knew ahead of time the impact this pandemic would happen and the PPE requirement. In fact, we actually, in the earlier phases, we shipped out a bunch of PPE from our here in the United States to use within our own operations, our own you know, manufacturing areas uh, in China. So knowing that, we anticipated a couple of things. First of all, we needed a lot of PPE, gloves, masks, sanitizers, uh, dividers, um, a lot of safety, janitorial and sanitary products, which we already were you know, fulfilling. Mm-hmm. So that's anticipation number one. Anticipation number two, we saw the impact it had in safety overall for associates out there. So what we anticipated on our end was for us to be able to provide the services and capabilities to our customer, we could not do it without taking care of safety of our associates. Again, that's the second order effect of that. So that was the second anticipation. The third anticipation is if we were going to have an impact based on our own operational constraints, I'm pretty sure our partners, our dropship network, our carriers, UPS, FedEx, and so on and so forth, would have the similar kind of an impact. So this would be an adverse reaction to our customers as well. So those were the three key areas that we saw uh, that was coming down the pipe. Now, we didn't know how much the intensity we didn't know, the frequency didn't know. We didn't know the amplitude or frequency, but we knew these were what we needed to do. So uh, very early on, we put a, a SWAT team together uh, of, of the best of the breed of leaders internally and said, guys, we need to go out and source these products that our customers need, whatever it takes. Let's make sure that we have the assortment that our customers need. And the team, you know, did a phenomenal job. I mean, you can talk about, and they literally scoured the earth. And I, when I say scoured the earth, they scoured the earth for the products that they needed. Wow. Second thing that we did is we internally uh, uh, created a very high standard of safety and safety protocol around our own associate base. We went remote literally within 48 hours. When we had to close down our site, our IT team, you know, led by our CIO, Manoj Shetty, and his entire team did a phenomenal job. We are not a work-from-home culture. We went remote 48 hours. Again, anticipation and preparation happened, executed flawlessly. We were able to provide PPE to our own associates. We created social distancing norm. We went into rotation. We used the same products that we were selling to our customers internally to keep our associate uh, base. And most importantly, our DC associates who can't work from home safe and, and, and going. And our safety standards were, I would say, a level or two above what CDC was prescribing or what we thought were reasonable. The third part of it was anticipating the delay. So this, is, this got manifested by us putting some capabilities on our website where we were able to communicate to our customers, hey, if you're in this particular area or state, and if that state is impacted due to carrier delays, we may not be able to get your products in time. So wait on it. We will get you, but you know it might take a little bit of time. We implemented chatbots, we implemented FAQ pages, we implemented communication cadences. So again, proactively communicating to our customers that, hey, I know you are going through this, we all are, let's get, you know, we are all in it together, but we are going to get ahead of it. Again, proactivity in all of these three steps. Wild. It's, it's proactive, but it's clear, it's clean, it's not complicated. It didn't take a whole lot of work to figure this stuff out. It just took like the focus and... and um, kind of the strategic thinking side of things. So how about on the on the friction removal side? Give me, give me an example there. And I'm going into all three here because these are good. 
Absolutely. On, on the friction removal side, I, I think the first and foremost was uh, we uh, we in, innovated or we improved our uh, website experience. I mean, we were in a certain website experience that, that that we upgraded actually fairly early in the year. We added a couple of capabilities where instead in the past, what we used to do is we used to communicate that, hey, if you order from us, Cameron, we're going to ship it in the 24 hours. Well, our customers don't care when it ships. What they care about is when it's going to get to your doorstep. So we created the functionality and, and the entire supply chain you know, innovation to say, if you order at this time, on this DDMMYY, you're going to get the product at your door. We innovated around customer experience in terms of our web experience. We added chatbots. We added a chat team. We added a multiple self-service capability. Where's my stuff? I want to, uh, you know, get update on a particular cancellations, so on and so forth. A lot of self-service was implemented at that point in time, and we also uh, made sure that our IVR menu, if somebody had to call in, was very much simplified to take that friction out of the picture. And the last piece is, if we were out of stock in certain areas, we were very, you know, vocal about, hey, we're it's out of stock. If you order it, it's going to be back order. So we're not hiding behind uh, uh, saying we had the stock, buy it, and we'll get it to you. So those are all the areas that we thought at that moment where those would be the areas of friction, and we removed all of it for, for our customers. Wow. It's interesting. I, I even, just as you were talking, just for fun, had to go on your website, systemax.com, just to see if the website was consistent with the simplicity, and, and it was. Like I, even, even when you go to the Contact Us page, just even to fill out a form to email you, all you need is name, email, and message. Like you yep. don't overcomplicate it with 17 fields. And it's like everybody else makes it hard to contact you, but there it is, your website, your yep. you know, your email, it's all right there. And yep. like, it's just the whole, the website, the font is big enough. Like just some stuff that every other company seems to screw up. Mm -hmm. You guys are a fairly big industrial where you would typically be a, a more of a blue collar, probably more government style website. Mm -hmm. Not at all. It's super nice and yeah. Yeah. Um, Again, credit goes to the team that we have here. I mean, we, we, we have a very, very solid team and, you know, they, they really obsess about these things. How, how many people are on your team? So the or overall, in the, within, uh, in the company, we have about 1,500 associates between the United States and Canada. Um, I would say, you know, the, about 600 to 700 within operations, about 500, 550 in sales. We do have a direct sales channel, a consultative sales channel, which we think is a, is a differentiator for us. Most of our sales uh, associates are OSHA certified. So you can, rather than if you have a fairly large project and you want to buy a lot of products, you don't have to model around with the website. Again, going back to taking friction away and adding convenience, even though it's a high cost methodology, we have a direct consultative sales group where you can call in and they will handhold you through that entire process as well. And we have about, you know, the remaining uh, the folks in, in support functions IT. We have about 100 between here and, and in India. Uh, we have finance group and so on. So it's about a total of 1,500 associates between U.S., Canada, and India. And 1,500 on the teams, 1,500 associates. When COVID hit eight, nine months ago, how, how long did it take? I don't imagine it was long. How long did it take you guys to go remote? Uh, so for the 600 uh, distribution center associates, they could not. Yep. But for the remaining 1,100, 48 hours. <laughs> of course. So, so how do you take 1,100 people and go remote? Like where you, if, if we had asked you a year ago, would you ever go remote? It would have been no way, no how, can't do it, not going to do it, no point in doing it, right? Every, yep. And then 48 hours later, you're like, well, we're remote. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. 
I, I, I think, uh, you know, uh, I would say this was, uh, this was a lot of preparation, a little bit of luck uh, as well. I mean, for years, our uh, processes that we have put around, around controls and so on uh, has been evolved as we moved along. And with uh, the team that we have, specifically our IT team, we had already gotten fairly large cloud infrastructure, so it was not dependent on on-prem. Uh, most of our capabilities and software could be, you know, uh, immediately, you know, migrated over to the cloud. So as long as our associates had an internet connection and uh, 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 the computer laptop, they could operate. Um, if they didn't have a laptop, we provided them laptop, yeah. literally within 48 hours. I mean, we literally scoured our inventory and then we provided them laptop. If they did not have broadband, we provided them those mobile hotspots that connected directly to the telephony company and that would provide broadband. If they didn't have telephony the equipment, we provided that to them. So uh, we, we were prepared and the timing did happen and it was a little bit of luck as well, but the execution was flawless, Cameron. I mean, I, I was very proud of the entire team to be able to do that. Pretty extraordinary. So Ritesh, what do you focus on in your role as the chief operating officer in a, in a brand this big, a company this big and distributed work mm -hmm. teams? What do you focus on day to day? What's your day to day, your month look like? So my day to day, my month to month, my year to year really doesn't change. Again, going back to the key themes, right? The first strategic priority, the first tactical priority is taking care of our customers or delivering that wow customer experience. That is the bedrock of everything that we do. So that doesn't change. And, and, and the way we do it is in every part of the, uh, the you know, business that we have, like I mentioned earlier, we always look at friction points and try to figure that out. The way we listen to the customer is we have a voice of customer process that I started when I joined. We'll, we have a weekly survey that we look at our you know, good, bad, and ugly and warts. And we have a very clear, you, you know, good, uh, uh, you said good, bad, ugly, and warts. Yes, I love it. Uh, uh, you know, the, and, and the really understand from our customers what we're doing well, what we're not doing well, and create very focused initiatives around certain big themes. And that goes into what I would consider the weeklies and the dailies. Once we feel like we have gotten a control of a, a wart or that wart has been removed, something else comes up. So that gets you know, slotted into that slot. But the overall theme of providing uh, wow customer experience really doesn't change. So that's strategic you know, focus number one. Strategic focus number two, again, doesn't change whether it's yearly, quarterly, weekly, or daily, is uh, utilizing the resources that we have and inspiring them. And let me, let, let me explain what that means. One is the human resources, all the associates we have, all the talent we have. Uh, a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of times people will talk about, hey, you know, we, we, the, uh, technology is the, uh, you know, innovator or technology is the catalyst. But that doesn't impl uh, get implemented unless and until you have the talent density that is required and you can inspire ordinary people to do extraordinary things every single day. So my next, the second priority is, having to manage a fairly large group of people and a lot of them hourly, you have to be able to inspire them, motivate them, make sure that they feel connected to the broader you know, picture of what we are trying to do and how their work ties into that. So that's the second part of you know, managing the resources and motivating it. And of course, technology comes into it, strategy comes into it, so on and so forth. Wow. The third piece of my role is PNL uh, growth and optimization. Um, if I do number one, and number two, well, customer experience, my resources. The third one is an output. 
I would like to think. But again, how do I drive my P&L revenue? That's the growth piece. It is going to come from direct sales. Is it going to come from uh, the e-commerce? Is it going to come from direct uh, uh, affiliate program? Is it going to come from uh, dropship? Is it going to come from products? Is it going to come from services? That's the revenue part. On the cost side, how do we continuously transform, scale, and grow while reducing our cost and then provide that operating leverage to our uh, company? So there are clear uh, strategic priorities in these three buckets. There are multiple tactical projects or initiatives that we do on a weekly, monthly, and quarterly basis. Some of them roll off, some of them don't, and there are intense amount of you know uh, KPIs that we measure, which I won't bore you with. But you know, I follow John Dor, you know, John Dor's methodology: measure what, uh, what matters, and then if it, if you can't measure it, it doesn't it doesn't exist. So we are a very data driven and analytical company. It's amazing. All right, Ritesh, one final question. If we were to go back to the 21-year-old, 22-year-old, you, you know, you're graduating college, you're getting ready to start off in your career. What advice would you give yourself that, you know, now you know it to be true, but you wish you'd known back then? Uh, the, the, can I go, go with uh, uh, a couple rather than one? That's yep. gonna, that, uh, we can go hours and hours and hours into this. But no. the first one would be, uh, and, and th- th- this is something that I've reflected on quite a bit is a- a- as a leader and-, and as a leader of leaders, what I would have gone back and told myself early on in my career is be a coach, not a judge. Whoa. Being a judge is extraordinarily easy, mm. but being a coach requires understanding, empathy, and really looking at as many different points of view as possible and really you know, coach the team. So that's number one. Number two, focus on learning versus impressing others. It's easy early in your career where you come in right out of the gate, you're this bright mind or you you think you're good and you really want to impress other people. Hey, I want to do this. And it's all me-centric versus learning about what other people could teach you. It's somebody else's or us-centric or uh, other people-centric. So uh, don't, impre- don't, don't focus on impressing other people, but learn. Be the truly learning you know, machine that you are. The third, would, I would say, is focus on inputs, not on outputs. Mm-hmm. Outputs can change, right? I mean, it's, it's like you know, having a conversation with my wife. In the morning, when I wake up, I love you, honey. She's like, yeah, I love you too. Mm-hmm. By the evening, when she's frazzled, she has uh, tackled the kids. I say, I, uh, when I say I love you, it's like, what are you talking about, right? Same input, very different output. So mm-hmm. focus on the inputs. Outputs. Is a, is a, you can use that to, you know, uh, post-mortem and so on. And the last piece I would say is be humble. Um, it's so easy to get blinded by your own expertise, your own, uh, you know, aura or your own, you know, propaganda that people feed you, but be very humble. Be humble in intellectual humility, humble in your overall approach to people. You can learn a lot more from other people. Be humble that you don't know. The more you uh, know, the less you know. And be humble that you definitely uh, have people that have diverse points of view, which are equally important. That intellectual diversity, not just you know racial diversity, but intellectual diversity. So being humble is going to be very, very important. So that's, that's what I would encapsulate myself into. Wow. Solid. Ritesh, I, I could sit here and, and ask you questions for hours, but no one would, we'd become like a Joe Rogan or Tim Ferriss episode with like hours and hours. This is really great stuff. I super, uh, super thankful for your time today and, and sharing. Really appreciate you being on the Second Command podcast. Thank you, Cameron. Pleasure to be here. And, and again, I uh, really appreciate the time and the golden nuggets that you gave me. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. Thanks so much. 
You've been listening to Second in Command, brought to you by COO Alliance founder Cameron Harold. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe to us on Himalaya for access to our premium content. For more best practices from industry-leading COOs, visit COOalliance.com.